Hopefully you guys are already at the Gospel of John chapter 9. I'm going to jump right in. Uh, we've been in this entire chapter now for about three weeks, and uh, we are going to conclude it today. Uh, the entire story, a quick little uh, review, is just kind of up here. I mentioned this entire story about Jesus healing this guy who was born blind, kind of comes to us at six different scenes. We looked at each and every scene. I'm not going to go through each and every scene. Uh, you can go ahead and listen to the past few weeks of this that was available for you guys. But I want to focus on just specifically today, the last two ones. The first one of last week, which was his excommunication. This guy was basically kicked out of the synagogue in the relationship of being connected to other Jewish people there in the first century. Why? What was his crime? What was his sin? Nothing. He was healed by Jesus. And he bared testimony. He actually had the tenacity to bear testimony to the fact that Jesus actually healed him. And so as a result of that, he did, his narrative did not fit in with the narrative of the prevailing power sources of the day. And so as a result of that, he was essentially kicked out. But this is where the story gets really beautiful because Jesus then steps in. We're going to look at scene six, which is the restoration. I'm just going to read the entire passage. It kind of brings the conclusion of the story to a, a nice end. So why don't you guys just go ahead and listen to story time with Pastor B. Here we go. Pick it up at verse 35. It says, as Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe the son of man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And then Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is now speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, for those who do not see may see, so that those who may see become blind. For the Pharisees near him heard him saying these things, and they said to him, are you saying that we're blind? And then Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would not have any guilt, but now that you say we see our, your guilt remains. And this is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to jump right in and begin to take a look at this because this is really awesome. Um, just in summary of three specific things, if you guys are taking notes, you can write these things down. Number one, I just think kind of the big obvious E on the eye chart that we've been looking at the past few weeks is that number one, toxic religion always at some point eventually cancels all of its devotees. Always. I don't care what religion or whether it's secular or sacred, any form of toxic religion. I mentioned last week I made a distinction between toxic forms of religion and pure and undefiled religions. Because James tells us that there's a pure and undefiled religion that looks like visiting the orphans and helping those that are in the margins and loving all your neighbors and loving even your enemies. That's what pure and undefiled religion is. However, there's toxic forms of religion. Maybe we could describe it as like over-fundamentalism or something like that, something that to some point becomes toxic and destructive and hurtful and harmful and uh, has certain characteristic traits that uh, find other people and oust them and hate them and it's arrogant and prideful and whatnot. And so what we see always at some point, toxic forms of religion will always take those that are its most loyal devotees and at some point you will break the rule, you will fail in some way, you will not say the right thing, you won't do the secret handshake properly and then you'll be kicked out, booted out. That thing which you devoted your life to now hates you, and you're no longer in sort of inside of the group. I mean, we've seen things of like there's there've been exposés. I'm, I'll, I'll pick an easy, low hanging fruit one, like the Church of Scientology, for example. You guys have all seen those exposés on that, where you know said movie star leaves the group, and now that person's hated. Right? You get this kind of idea. We even have secular versions of this, whether it be the left uh, or the right forms of political 
uh, parties. They, these are the types of things that oftentimes happen. But the same is true of religion. You fail in some way, at some point you will be ousted. But here's the second thing it kind of leads into, is that we see that Jesus actually seeks out those who are cast out. You gotta love this about Jesus, is that Jesus is not put off by the one that does not fit in. He goes out of his way, finds those that have been marginalized or alienated or hated upon, and he goes and regathers them. And the beauty of this is that, that you as a human being, you are not unseen by God. I don't know what type of circumstances you're going through in life. Or have you ever been through circumstances before where over prolonged pain or hardship or difficulty or challenges in your life, at some point you begin to kind of even ask yourself, am I even seen? Does God even see me? Does he even know what types of circumstances I've gone through? I've for sure been there. Multiple times where I've just kind of had to assess my landscape and be like, God, sometimes I feel unseen. I know you see other people. Sometimes I'm not really sure if you really see me or if you see the plight I'm going through. And that uses the result of ongoing chronic forms of pain that just seem to never cease. But what we see here with this guy, even though he was ousted, kicked out, put off into the margins, Jesus sees him. Jesus goes out of his way to basically bring about a restoration of this particular cast out. And then third thing I want to highlight, and I want to spend the rest of our time just kind of thinking about this, is that spiritual blindness is real. You guys catch in a little story of how Jesus basically turns this whole story from being physical blindness into spiritual blindness. Did you catch that? So the religious leaders, they come up to him like, are you saying that we're blind too? And Jesus like, basically in cryptic way, it's like, of course, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm glad you guys caught that. Like, that's the whole point. You guys are blind. You're so blind, you do not see, you're, com- you're just in this state of blindness, and yet the reality is, is that you guys are setting yourself out as being the authorities of religion, and yet you are its chief antagonists. You're the chief proponents of a toxic form of religion, and it's, you, you are not only destroying yourselves, but you're also destroying everybody else who's kind of within your sphere of influence, and, and this is really what Jesus kind of shifts to begin to focus on is that there are various forms of blindness or spiritual blindness. And this is, this seems to be the heart of what John is trying to get to. So what I want to do right now is I want to think a little bit about the subject of spiritual blindness. I want, then I want to kind of contrast that with spiritual sight because that's the way the story is that Jesus opens the eyes of this guy. Um, and it's not just his eyes that are open. It's not just the physical healing that took place. But this guy, as you see in this interaction with Jesus, as Jesus goes after him, he says, you know, who are you, Lord, that I might believe in you? And then uh, it concludes with him actually worshiping Jesus. So it's, there's some beautiful things to kind of point out here. And I want to highlight, and I'll, I'll get to this in just a moment. But as I was thinking about blindness, like asking myself, like, what is spiritual blindness? And how ubiquitous is this in our culture, in our world? Um, the, the way I would describe this is that spiritual blindness is what uh, many theologians would even describe as what's commonly known as um, original sin. So the idea of spiritual blindness in the Bible uh, basically takes its form and shape in at least like the third chapter of the New Testament or the Old Testament. All right. When Adam and Eve created by God to be in a relationship with God, to love God, to hear from God, to walk in the ways of God. I mean, God at the very beginning creates all things. It's a really good world. I was uh, reading a passage from C.S. Lewis, and it said, he said something to this effect. Um, it costs God nothing so far as we know to create a world that's good. Nothing. But it cost him his crucifixion of his son to save our souls. So that's a pretty heavy thing to just consider. Like, it cost God nothing to create all things beautiful and good. 
There is no skin off of God's back in order to basically create goodness and beauty. But God just creates it. It's there. It's awesome. I mean, all the things that we look at as human beings and we find incredible delight in, God created those things with no sweat whatsoever. Um, and this is what we see is that at the very beginning, God created human beings and put them, placed them in the midst of this creation and says, I want you to thrive. I want you to flourish. I want you to have life and abundance and goodness. And as a result of that, it's going to, in order for you to do what uh, you are to do, you need wisdom to live by. And so therefore, I'm going to be the one that's the source of wisdom for you. So you will follow me. You obey me. You trust me. I will give you everything that you need. But we know the story. That Adam and Eve ultimately are deceived by the serpent. They turn from God. They turn inward to their own sources of wisdom. As a result of that, it unleashes chaos upon the world, upon their own lives, and upon the relationships that they have. And that's what sin always does. So as a result of that, they become literally, uh, or figuratively, I should say, spiritually blind. They become spiritually blind, unable to really see the goodness of God in any really comprehensive type of a way. And the way that New Testament and Old Testament scholars have identified it, as I already mentioned, is this concept of original sin, or another way of thinking about it is called inherited sin. That from Adam and Eve, we inherited that same type of spiritual blindness. Every one of us, the default nature of our hearts, of our soul, coming into this world, is we are spiritually blind. Now, there's things that we can sense or discern in our world, right? There's, we, can, we can taste and see certain things that are good. But when it comes to actually observing and being swept up into the absolute beauty and goodness of God, uh, human beings are not naturally born in that state of becoming worshipers. Something new has to happen. This is where what Jesus would describe is you have to be born again. You have to be born again. Something has to take place in your life that reawakens you or awakens you the first time to the very goodness of God. Jesus would call that being born again or a state of new life. Now, with that being said, as we kind of jump into this, I was thinking there's at least eight different things that take place as a result of, that are kind of below the idea of original sin or inherited sin, that basically continue to perpetuate a state of uh, spiritual blindedness. And I'll kind of go through these really quickly, so if you guys want, I'm just going to go through these fast. I'm not even going to reference all of these passages, but they're up there for you to be essentially either write down or take a snapshot or whatever, however you want to do that. But I want to make reference to some of these things. Um, the first one is spiritual blindness happens by way of, number one, pride. Number one, pride. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers, said something to this effect. He says, the first cause of errors in our day is spiritual pride. He says, this is the main door by which the devil comes into the heart. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead. He says, spiritual pride is the main support of all other errors. It's the main support of all other errors. And this seems to play into the very first chapters of the book of Genesis, where Adam and Eve, rather than saying, yes, we will humble ourselves before God and take all that God has for us, they turn their back against God, thinking that somehow God was not giving them all that was their due. I mean, it's kind of the source of it all. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever ever kind of looked at your life or looked at other people, especially by way of comparison? You know, when we look at other people's lives and think, well, they got the promotion or they got a spouse or they have a child and I still don't have a child and I still don't have a spouse and I still barely have a job and I'm more in debt than I've ever been before. It's really easy to look at other people and think, well, maybe God's actually withholding something from me. Maybe God claims to be all good, but he's really not all good. Or at least he's all good for other people, but not all good for me. And as a result of that, uh, we oftentimes can inflate our own souls where we 
uh, have some degree of thinking, I think I know better than God. And we begin to make decisions based upon this new framework that we have inside of our souls, inside of our thinking. This is what he would describe as pride. C.S. Lewis would later describe pride like this. He says, it's the essential vice or the main baseline for all vice. It's the essential vice. The utmost evil is pride. He says, unchastity is a great line. He says, unchastity, which you guys know what unchastity is. You know what I'm saying? You you can look it up. But you get the idea. Um, We never use that word anymore today. But the idea, he says, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness are all but mere flea bites in comparison. It is through pride that the devil came, became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is pride which has been the chief cause of darkness in every nation and family ever since the beginning of the world. And I think these voices, whether it be Jonathan Edwards or C.S. Lewis, they would literally resonate with voices like Aquinas or Augustine or any other church father over the past 2,000 years. That pride is the beginning state of all forms of spiritual blindness or spiritual darkness. Um, as we kind of move on to this, we see the second thing is unbelief, or another word that I would use is disbelief. Unbelief is just sort of the static form of, like, I, I don't believe. It's the, the description of someone that just not, does not have certain belief in a certain thing. But disbelief is like, I see the facts, I know what the data says, or I know what the scripture des- describes, but I'm going to choose to describe or live according to another way. It's disbelief. And this also is a source of spiritual blindness. I'll read you this passage, First John chapter 2, verse 15. It says, this, do not, I'm sorry, it's sorry, all of John chapter 9, I'll actually come back to the next one. All of John chapter 9 seems to be this description of these religious leaders. They had seen who Jesus was. They saw his miracles, they heard his teachings, uh, and yet at the same time, they chose to not believe in Jesus. Uh, and this perpetuated their blindness. So the question oftentimes we have to ask is, is what story or what narrative is the driving narrative of your life? Now, I've said this before, but every one of us in this room, every one of us in Slow City, every one of us in Slow County, every one of us in California, all of us are people of faith. You cannot be in here and say, like, I'm not a person of faith. You are a person of faith. There is something, some narrative, some storyline that you have affixed your confidence in. That's all it means to be someone that is a person of faith. There's some narrative. That you say, I'm devoting my time and my energy and my hope that this thing will somehow bring life or bring about some degree of utopia or help or wholeness to the world in which we live in. Now, again, like I've said before, even last week, I think it was, in our culture today in which um, religion is kind of beginning to move more often to the margins, there are new various forms of secular religions that are arising, which are oftentimes taking the form in the shape of political uh, devotion. And we see, it's, again, for many people, politics, it's not just politics. It's the religion. And if you begin to think of it in this context, it begins to make sense why they're such loyalists to a particular party. It's their hope. It's their confidence. Their faith is affixed to their particular religious standing. And if you attack it or you change it or you you destroy it, you're basically disrupting the very foundations of their life, which is exactly what Jesus intends to be. But the beauty of Jesus is that you can't shake Jesus Right? It's one of the reasons why people were willing to go to the grave for the sake of Jesus. Because you can attack Jesus. It's one of the reasons why Christians, by the way, don't arise and have terror attacks when the Bible is burnt. It doesn't disrupt anything. 
It doesn't change my faith. It doesn't lessen my God. If you're going to destroy the Bible, whatever, that's, you're going to have to answer that before God. I, I'm not deeply offended by that. It's, it, you destroy a Bible, you're not destroying my faith. You're not destroying the power of Jesus. It's still prevalent. Nothing's going to change in the universe because you try to marginalize Christianity or Christian values or even the Bible that is an emblem of all of this. But the fact of the matter is, is that we see this type of movement that's happening in our world today. And the point that I would go back to is unbelief or disbelief in Jesus oftentimes leads to these uh, perpetual states of more blindness. And then third thing is we see love of the world. This is, I'm going to read this passage, First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Just go ahead and listen. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all of this, all the things that are in this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. The world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of the Lord will abide forever. So John is pretty clear. Again, the author of this book that we're reading now in the Gospel of John is also the guy that wrote this particular book. And his whole point is that if you love the things of this world, the love of the Father, the love of God begins to be kind of shoved off into the recesses of your own heart and your own devotion. In other words, you will step into states of spiritual blindness. Fourthly, disobedience is also another marker of this. So you can take a look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's this whole statement where Moses rises up. He's kind of the leader of the Jewish people. They come out of the wilderness, and God has just done incredible miracles and exploits for them. And yet the children of Israel are kind of faced with this choice. Will we follow Yahweh God and do what he's asked us to do? Or will we find ourselves defaulting back into longings and desires that have nothing to do with God? And this is the same state that many of us kind of face. And so what we see as a result of this, they make choices that lead towards disobedience to what they know that's been shown to them that look like obedience before God. And as a result of that, their hearts grow dark. Fifthly, this is also another interesting one, is hatred. Did you know that? Hatred? If you hate people, disdain for another person. I don't care how you define it or describe it. It could be hatred towards another skin color. It could be hatred towards just another person, period. It could be hatred toward an ex-spouse, period. I don't care. You're feeling the blank. Hatred, hatred, hatred. And all of its packaging and all of its little processing, all form of hatred is what John would say. He says, if anyone hates, is still living and walking in darkness. He goes on to say, such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. That's a tough one to even kind of swallow for some of us, especially we live in a world that's just, we're fueled by rage. Have you ever noticed that? Like, that's kind of how the algorithms work on social media. It's like, if you're angry with this particular idea or concept or ideology, it's just going to keep feeding that to you. You know why? Because it keeps bringing you back into its whole algorithmic state so that now that rage that's constantly being fueled by you is just going to suck you back in and more rage and more rage. And what James or what, what John seems to be suggesting here is that these cycles of hatred and repulsion and disdain keep us walking in darkness. Uh, sixthly, Satan, obvious, and it goes on to describe in Second Corinthians chapter four. He says, the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the good news of the beauty of Jesus, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Satan, there is there is a dark, evil force alive. And again, I think I just talked about this like maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Take a look at that uh, message or 
take a deep dive into that, talk a lot about devil stuff and all that. So, but the point of the matter is, is that this, this is a real force. Uh, that the Bible seems to affirm over and over and over again, which seems to be cropping its head up more than ever before in our culture. I mean, think about this, guys. What types of narratives are you constantly feeding off of and listening to? I'll just give you a certain example. Like the music. What, what type of music are you listening to over and over and over again that are on your playlist that you listen to on repeat? Each one of those are a message. There's a, they're a message of something. They're telling you something. They're feeding your mind on something. They're casting a worldview, a vision for you how to live life, how to think about your neighbor, how to think about those that are horrible human beings in our culture, whether it be from a moral high ground or a moral low ground. But they're all teaching you something. The question is, what are they teaching you? What are they teaching you? Is it a message that leads to life? Is it a message of wisdom? And I mean, I, look, I'm not a huge advocate of saying just change the entire playlist out for Christian music because there's a lot of Christian music I, I, I hate. There you go. I just said it. Hatred. It's something I'm working through. I'm dealing with before Jesus. There's a lot of Christian music I just abhor. I'll even throw out a, I'll even top hatred with the, the next up. Um, but the pa- fact of the matter is, is that, that, that the messages that we listen, one of the reasons why I like listen to podcasts, I don't listen to a whole lot of music unless it's like instrumental. Um, I like Bach. He's good. Anyways, but the point of the matter is you get the idea. What, what are you feeding off of? What's feeding your soul? What's speaking to you? And these are the types of things that will are oftentimes influenced by the devil, by evil, by Satan, in a variety of forms. And again, it, it, it doesn't have to be overtly satanic to somehow fit into that bill. It could just be a message that is not in alignment with the heart and the mind of Jesus that can then mislead us into a path of darkness. All right, number seven following blind guides. This kind of dovetails into what I was saying earlier as far as the the messengers, the people that speak most loudly or most boldly, whether it be on social media, influencers that you follow, influencers that are having influence over your life, or musicians that you're devoted to, people that are constantly coming up in your playlist. What are they saying to you? What type of guides are they? Are they blind guides? Because if they're blind guides, and you feed off of their wisdom on repeat, then you will follow blind guides into further blindness. Why, why would we do this? Especially if Jesus offers us an alternative to live and to find, discover life. Matthew 15 verses 14 says this, when blind lead the blind, they both fall into a pit. This is just classic wisdom of Jesus. And then lastly, Caring for what others think, or what you can describe as conformity to groupthink, if you want to think of it this way. Conformity to groupthink, caring what others think. Uh, John chapter 12, verses 42 to 43, and I'm almost done here. He says this, for fear of the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, of course, uh, they did not confess in their belief to in Jesus. Uh, in other words, they were not quick to go out and say, we all follow Jesus, because they were afraid as to what would happen to them. They were concerned that the religious leaders of their day, or the people that had the power, or the influencers, or the people that had uh, political clout, that they would discover that they're following somebody that they have basically banned, and yet as a result of that, they would then share the same fate as the one that they banned. Is that all making sense? So in other words, if Jesus ultimately is going to end up being canceled in the most ultimate sense, crucified, uh, if you follow this Jesus, you will likely share in his fate. And so there are some that believe that Jesus is probably the Messiah, but they didn't really want to fully follow Jesus. They were kind of like undercover followers of Jesus because, and which meant they were, they were still kind of walking in darkness. There was a, still a darkness cast over their soul. 
So all of this, I think, is just a variety of ways of thinking about how spiritual darkness gets perpetuated in our lives. Lastly, I want to finish up with this. What does spiritual sight look like, and how does it happen? Four really quick things. I'll go through this fast. Number one, it begins first and foremost by God's initiation. Do you notice that? This guy is cast out. He's not looking for Jesus. He's not looking for hope. He's not looking even for healing. He's literally looking for a handout. Did you catch that at the very beginning of the story? Like the first few verses of chapter 9. We're just told this guy is like in the temple begging for money. Jesus and his followers are kind of hanging around. They notice the guy. They have a little bit of a discourse about this particular guy. But Jesus heals this guy. He wasn't looking for a healing. I've said this to you guys before. Like when I became a Christian, I wasn't like looking to be saved. I didn't go to some revival meeting being like, I'm going to go there with the hopes of finding Jesus. I wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for me. It's an absolutely beautiful way in which this describes God initiates this thing. You don't initiate this. You don't like wake up one day, I'm going to be healed from my blindness. Like God's the one that heals you from your spiritual blindness. Like it begins by God's incredibly grace-filled initiation. So we come here this morning uh, as responders to this God. That, that this God has done something on our behalf to initiate healing and wholeness and salvation. And therefore, that's what worship is. It's a response to this God. Secondly, we see that faith in Jesus is also essential. Uh, take a look at that little passage right there. It goes on to say in verse 38 that he then turns to Jesus. He says, who are you that I might believe? So he has his eyes open. Jesus comes back to him, and he recognizes the importance of having confidence or placing confidence in Jesus. The third thing, we see that he confesses Jesus. Later, I think Paul the Apostle would kind of put it into these words. Romans chapter chapter 10, verse 9, he says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love this. The way the New Living Translation puts it, it says this, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So a lot of times people kind of wonder, like, what do I got to do to get saved? What do I got to do to actually discover? Well, first of all, you got to realize that God's already initiating. He's already doing something. The fact that you're even here this morning, the fact that there's even an inkling of desire to want to know something a little bit about God, that's God's initiation. Thank you for that. You can begin with that just saying, God, thank you. I really don't know exactly what this means. I really don't even know why I'm even here. But I'm, I just want to say thank you. I'm alive. Thank you. I got breath. Thank you that I'm able to kind of hear and think about these things that you're inviting me into. Number two, he goes on to say, uh, if you confess with your mouth, if you declare, speak forth, communicate that God has raised Jesus from the dead. He says, this is how you will enter into, recognize, know, declare the fact that you are part of this work, this family that God is establishing. And then lastly, we see he worships Jesus. And again, this kind of plays out in the passage here. Take a look at it again. Verse 38 says, Lord, I believe. And then he worshiped him. One of the ways in which you will truly know that you have truly experienced like salvation is that your heart moves from worshiping other things. What does worship mean? Worship simply means uh, proclaiming or establishing worth upon something else. It's literally what the word worthy means or worship means, the declaration of worth or value. What are the things that you ultimately value above and beyond everything else in this life? A Christian, someone that's been acted upon by God, that has responded to the grace of God, is someone that that sees God, not just sees God, but savors God. Sees and savors God. There's a value system, a value shift that's happened in your soul that says, I really, truly 
love God and I want to be with God in he himself. Not his stuff, not his gifts, but he is my treasure. His, his gifts are awesome, but those are just like icing on the cake. It's byproduct. It's all part of his goodness. He himself is ultimately the treasure. I said that that's what a Christian is. Someone that looks at the sum total of your life. And this is a good moment for you to just even do a quick little audit of your own self. Like, what are the deep driving values of your soul? If you want to think of it another way, what do you live for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Where's your hope placed? What are you looking to as an ultimate means of hope and transformation? Here's another way. What do you give thanks to? I think my lucky stars. Oh, not a Christian. We don't, we, stars are God's artistic project. We don't worship the art that he made. They declare his glory. In fact, if anything, stars just shout his praises because he's good. But God is above his created works. So we, we thank him. Our gratitude goes to him. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who's for us. So spiritual darkness, spiritual blindness. It's a good moment for you to do an assessment. Where are you at today? How would you say your soul would be described? Spiritually dark, spiritually blind, or alive? Jesus did something in you. And if you're in a state of darkness, I I truly believe God's already kind of initiated something in you that you can literally just turn to him and say, who are you, Jesus, that I might worship you and have confidence in you? I'm going to have Dan come on up, and we're just going to close in a little song. So why don't you all stand? And I want to pray over us as we just wrap it up and are invited into what God wants to do here in this moment right now. And I'm going to pray over us. And uh, as we oftentimes do, if you are here, as soon as we're done, if you would like prayer for anything, we'd love to just pray for you. Um, do number two. And let's pray. And let's lift up our song to Jesus. So God, thank you for your great love. And even now we want to just declare the rock in which we stand on. That we build our lives upon you. You are our hope. You are our firm foundation. And we value you. And God, if any of us in this room here right now are building our house, our lives upon anything other than your firm foundation, may this be a moment to just confess that to you and ask you to help us, to reshape us, to make us become people that devote ourselves to you. Because everything in this world, everything in this world is passing. It's transient. It's flimsy. It's malleable. It breaks. And when it breaks, we oftentimes break with it. And maybe that's where some of us are here today. We're, we're just sitting here broken because we've had our confidence in something that broke. When it broke, we broke. So right now, Father, we want to shift our confidence and faith from these things to you, this immovable fortress. Let's lift up our voice. And I will build my life upon your it is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be with the will. I will build my life 
victims of some form of toxic ideology or religious system or situation or abuse or brokenness. We thank you that you you do not cast out. You welcome. You invite us to turn from our brokenness and our rebellious hearts and our sinfulness and to discover life that comes from you alone. So God, um, move and work in this place. Transform us, God, so that we become people, that as we leave here, that we go forth from here, being able to declare and announce and proclaim the goodness of your love. It's your love, Jesus, that awakens our hearts to worship. It's your kindness leads us to repentance. It's not because you're pointing fingers at us. It's not because you're filled with disappointment over us. It's because you love us so much. You invite us to turn from all forms of sinful proclivities and activities and actions and ways of breaking relationship with you. So God, it's your love that we respond to and turn toward. So empower us right now. Bring healing in those areas that are in need. And we ask all of these things here this morning. In Jesus' name, we all say, amen.